Welcome to the podcast. My name is David. Let's save the world. That's been a while since we've had an episode. Geek Wellness Education has been very busy, but we are back with a new episode. And this time we're going to start with a trigger warning. You know that this show can sometimes deal with some pretty heavy subjects, and this episode will be no different. Today we're talking about sexual assault. In just a little bit, I'll be speaking with Claire Kaplan, a member of the board of Take Back the Night, a 501c3 charitable organization that takes action against sexual violence and intimate partner violence. But first, we're going to talk about a new horror film called Take Back the Night, finding herself the victim of a violent monster attack. Jane launches a vigilante campaign to hunt the beast that tried to kill her. Jane's efforts intensify, but her troubling history of drug use and mental illness bubbles to the surface, causing her family, community, and authorities to question the authenticity of her account. Suddenly alone in her fight, Jane starts to doubt her own memory of the attack, to doubt if the monster exists at all. Here to speak with me about it is the director and co-writer of Take Back the Night, Gia Elliott. And I want to start off, first of all, by saying this is definitely more than a movie. It feels like it's also a message that you and Emma uh, felt the need to put out. You guys, uh, you pr uh, produced it, wrote it, uh, directed it. Obviously, Emma starred in it. Um, talk to me a little bit about the importance of... Uh, why you needed to get this movie made because this is your first feature, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just tell me about, about the mission behind this movie. Well, I had just come from law school where I was studying in New York and I was sitting on a bench with a criminal judge watching proceedings on calendar days. So I was seeing loads of motions and, you know, sentencing. And I would also sit with her um, during some trials Meanwhile, my crim law professor really was an expert in the way that sexual violence crimes are written. So I was studying a lot about the importance of where a comma goes or the word forcible and its impact on cases. And then I would, you know, go and sit with a judge and see those real life implications and see how they played out in court. You know, like I was looking at real people with my eyes and it was pretty horrifying to see the ways that things could be better for the survivors in their quest to find justice. So when I dropped out of law school and moved to Los Angeles, I, you know, found Emma and we kind of quickly discovered the overlap in interest of the failure of the criminal justice system to efficiently and, you know, gracefully procure justice for survivors. Emma was studying the effects of trauma on the brain, taking some online classes. And I had just studied, obviously, the legal underpinnings of what can really derail a case. And, and quickly from there, we're like, well, we should turn this into a film. Um, and we thought about, you know, making a documentary or a drama or something along those lines. Um, but they felt limiting because, you know, there's no way that you can capture the whole issue in a film. There's no way that you can do justice to every single person's experience. And they're perhaps include exclusionary just by virtue of being a film about sexual violence. You know, you're, there are a lot of people who feel intimidated to join the conversation. So we quickly decided that we really wanted it to the, the film to function as a conversation starter where people would feel comfortable not necessarily going wide with their conversations, but talking to the people closest with them about this issue. And so we wanted really to create a spot that was um, like a conversation starter for people. And that's sort of where we settled into the space of a monster movie. Well, the idea that someone would uh, not be convicted over a comma is incredibly frustrating. Um, but you mentioned like there's there's a scene in the movie, and I, I don't want to give away. I want I want people to see the film, but um, where they talk about well, I mean, rape kits were thousands behind uh, that are untested, and yeah. I think that I think that for someone who doesn't 
understand or hasn't you know looked into it, you go, oh yeah, right. So there's a big city with thousands of rape kits that haven't been tested. Yeah, right. No, that's that's actually real. Um, yeah. So I guess it was your, your history of watching it play out that led to the frustration. That scene in particular where uh, the detective was just going over, look, here's how the system's going to fail you and here's how the system's going to fail you. Uh, th- that seemed like uh, like an important scene for you. Um, and I guess we know why, because you watched it happen. Yeah. The Joyful Heart Foundation is Mariska Hargaday's nonprofit and they're focused on ending the backlog. There are you know, hundreds of thousands of backlogged physical evidence recovery kits, which is like the word for a rape kit. Um, and you can actually go to their website to discover like if there is any backlog in your area and if you want to do anything about it or that is something that feels important to you, I definitely would point you to the Joyful Heart Foundation for more info on specifically your own backlog in your area. One of the things that I think a lot of people are talking about with the film is that this is a female-led film in every – I mean there's I mean, there's a couple of men in the film, but uh, I mean kind of um, you know, not, uh, not main characters with you know, huge speaking roles and that sort of thing. I think that's important because there are a few scenes in this movie that um, – especially during her, uh, the beginnings of her – coping with the trauma and, you know, the investigation and therefore, and, 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 and such that I felt like creepily, um, I, I want to use the term voyeuristic, but it was, I don't, des- I, I shouldn't be seeing this. It felt me, I felt very uncomfortable watching it. And I feel like under a different director, those scenes, and I think we've all seen those movies where those exact scenes could have been could have been filmed with a salacious, you know, look, I know she was just victimized, but look at her boobs, you know, with that sort of mentality. And I think it was really important for you when you put us in those moments to make me feel like this is a horrible situation. This isn't, you know, this is not something that I want to witness, but I have to witness it because it's happening to her and I have to sit through this. So, I mean, I'm assuming that a lot of that, um, uneasiness was intentional? Yeah. I'm really glad that you picked up on that. It was important for us throughout the film to create moments where you would have to inspect your own impulse to sexualize her hot on the heels of her being traumatized because, you know, and I also will say, yes, there are no male-bodied actors that get FaceTime. Um, the cast is, or the, the people whose faces you see are, you know, women, people with uteruses, non-binary people. There are no male um, faces in the film. And it, it brings me, like, a lot of joy to hear you call out those moments of discomfort because it is crazy that we live in a society where women's cases are reliant on their purity, right? Did you Mm -hmm. deserve to be assaulted is the subtext, even if it's not what people are overtly saying. We think that the only way women deserve safety is if they are completely pure. But we are also using their bodies to sell things to people. We're using their breasts. We're using their stomachs. We're sexualizing them constantly. We're doing it in songs. We're doing it in movies. And so it is to me really frustrating that it's like, how do you expect women to be these virginal pure creatures and then also expect them to be like sex pots at all times? It, it feels so unfair. And so, yeah, it was intentional to sort of, I guess, point out those moments of like, but I know that you want to, right? Like, I know you are tempted to sexualize her in these moments. And, yeah. Well, and, and we've all seen, I mean, we're talking about horror movies. Yeah. Uh, oh, tra- yeah. Traumatizing women and then immediately sexualizing them in the in the context <laughs> of their trauma is pretty much what horror movies do. And it's, I, I'm, I hope that we're taking steps away from that. I, I, I mean, even as a kid who, you know, when I was... 13 years old, I'm like, do I really need to see these boobs right now? I mean, isn't there a killer on the loose? Um, yeah. 
there's more important things right now, guys. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that those scenes uh, were some of the most powerful in the film um, because of how it how it made you kind of examine, uh, I mean, other films, yourself, uh, that sort of thing. Um, another thing was, I mean, obviously society let her down, um, but I found it kind of interesting that other people, and I, I don't want to give too much away, <laughs> but other people who should have sympathized with her and like kind of gone along with her in that were antagonistic towards her in the film. Uh, almost like, you know, there are other women in the film that make things more difficult for her and make her story less believable or 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 at least spin it to where maybe people shouldn't believe her story. Um, so it's not like, because she's not perfect. You know, she's a, she's a regular person. She has a history. She's had sex before she's drank before. Oh no. Um, so what was it about even taking suppose like, I mean, people that like, I think on, as an outsider looking in, I would think, Oh, well this person will be an ally. Oh no, they're not. They're not believing her. Was that uh, like an important thing or to kind of like say, no, look, look, a lot of times it's the entire system. You know, we're so built into protecting people who, who, you know, rapists that the entire, like even other women and other, you know, the cops and whoever are, are, are trained to not trust. Um, you know, I'd be like that. There's the story about the guy, the kid who raped the girl who was all but unconscious, uh, and the judge was like, well, you know, if we send him to jail, it's going to ruin his life. And he seems like such a good guy. We don't want to do that to him. Um, that, that was a big story uh, nationally. But, uh, but specifically from the female point of view of other people who should normally be helping her not, uh, if you can formulate a question or an answer in that, in that <laughs> statement. Uh, the one thing I will say, you're talking about Chanel Miller um, and her case, and I admire that woman to the depths of my soul. I highly recommend her memoir, Know My Name. Um, that's, you know, it was coined like the Stanford swimmer case is what a lot of people were colloquially calling her case. Um, but what Chanel was lucky enough to have going for her at the time of her case is she felt comfortable enough in her society that she didn't lie. So what will happen a lot in these intake questions is as a woman or, you know, a non-male, you understand that your perceived right to safety is correlates to your purity, right? So you will inadvertently stack the deck trying to make yourself look pure, right? Were you drinking? Uh, not really. The cop writes down no. Then all of a sudden you've lied, right? Were you doing... X, Y, or Z incriminating thing. Uh, you know, well, I don't usually do that, right? Chanel's case, she was very straightforward. She was drinking. She was not comfortable. She went unconscious. Like, she told the truth about all those things. But most women don't have the bravery or the support system that Chanel had. And they say things that are less than truthful in order to convince people that they were worthy of not being assaulted. And their case becomes, you know, mired in lot like untruths. And then all of a sudden it's really hard to prosecute those cases. Um, which, you know, we could talk a lot about intake questions and how they should be rewritten and how these things should be handled. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out about Chanel cause I think that she's groovy and I'm glad that you brought her up. The, uh, I'm trying to remember what else you said and you like had a very meaty, substantive thought. <laughs> no, like I said, it, it just, it, it just surprised me that, that so many people who you would think would oh, be allies right. were. Okay. So I could, you know, it's hard without spoilers, but, um, I'm trying. <laughs> I know, I know me too. Um, the people closest to people who have experienced assault 
if they are not really well educated in what trauma behavior looks like, a lot of those behaviors can appear fishy, right? Repetitive behaviors, trying to remaster the thing that hurt them. The person who went out to a party and got date raped is suddenly partying every night. I don't know. Do we trust them? Did they maybe not actually get raped at that party? But there, that repetitive behavior, behavior, some people in psychology call it mastery. There's a lot of debate on whether or not that's the proper term for it. But um, that's a real thing. But if you see someone in your life behaving like that and you don't know that's a real trauma behavior, then you assume that they're lying to you, right? So Jane is doing a lot of fishy things. So the people around her are expecting her to perform her victimhood in one way. She's experiencing her trauma in an organic honest way. Jane's a very brave person. She's not very shy about saying what's on her mind or how she feels. And so when she's sharing her truth with people and it's not matching up with their cookie cutter idea of what this time should look like for Jane, you know, it's easy to start to question her. And then as far as the authorities go, you know, systems are made up of individuals and like the stats are that the worst person who could possibly be the lead detective on a case of sexual violence is someone who has a history of sexual violence. Um, and there are a lot of theories as to why. So I, I'm not a psychologist. I won't go into like full armchair expert, uh, territory here, but if that is like something that's interesting to somebody, um, who is researching or experiencing this in their life, I would highly recommend that they research uh, the potential impacts of, you know, detectives who have histories of sexual violence in their own past being working on the case. Hmm. Um, one of the things that she does that everyone, and again, every, there is no victim blueprint. Uh, every, everyone's going to be uh, going to react in their own way. Um, one of the ways that she reacts that people find uh, suspect is that she goes on the internet to find a sense of community. We all do that. Uh, you know, social media is now like, especially for younger folks, it's the way they express themselves. People have online friends that they've never met. Um, but in, in her case, there are some people who view it as seeking attention. Um, and some of my favorite bits of the film are, where is how real the internet uh, discussion is where, where there's some people where, you know, she's basically, and this isn't directly from the film, but she's basically, I was attacked and sexually assaulted. And there's people that are going, yeah, I'd hit it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well now that's completely inappropriate, but we know that that's on, you know, that's online that we know people respond that way. And what I found really interesting is how, because I mean, even as a viewer, I don't think you're, you're, you know, whether or not to trust her, you know, there's, there's that, we know she sees it as happened. She thinks it happened, but there's that question of, uh, up in the air. Um, and so I, I love how there's, she, she's showing a video and there's some people that are like, I see nothing in this video. And then there's other people who are like, yes, there it is. And it's the same exact video. They saw the exact same thing. But uh, I found it a really interesting, uh, almost like a little side move you made that just really analyzed people from in a very deep way of how some people are going to go, yep, I see I see the full thing there. And other people are like, yeah, I, I see absolutely nothing. Uh, so bravo on that uh, on the Internet aspect. Oh, thank you. You know, my deepest fear in my own life, like my core fear of existence is what's real and who decides. And so I'm playing, obviously that is the underpinning of the plot of what happens to Jane all sort of hinges on that question. And yeah, I think that you see it reverberated throughout the internet as well. The monster itself, again, uh, you know, maybe it's real, maybe it's in her imagination. Uh, I'll let the viewers um, find that out for themselves. But when it comes to uh, constructing, I mean, it's so gritty, it's filthy. I mean, and, and, and <laughs> you know, everything it touches, it just stains with this uh, filth. Um, when it came to designing the actual monster, uh, was a lot of that forefront in your head of how do we take this mystery? Uh, that is based in reality. Uh, you know, it's uh, obviously, you know, when you see the film, it's uh, it's based in actual, you know, sexual assault. But how do you 
turn a real life monster into a horror movie monster. In fact, in a, in a sense, it kind of reminded me of the Babadook. But um, but yeah, how, how was that process of turning a real life monster into a not only a, a movie uh, creature feature, but potentially one that was in her head? Man, you're a really, really good watcher. I am so excited to be talking to you. Everything that you're like picking up on and all the nuance that you're inferring is really cool to see. I, you know, put so much, I worked on this movie for five years. I put a lot of thought into like everything that is on screen. So just hear you kind of draw these connections is like really cool. So thank you for your thoughtful watch and for having me and asking me all these questions. The monster is interesting, right? Cause like when you go into creature design, there is a real impulse to be like, okay, but like how does it hunt and how do its legs work and how does an animal move? Which animals are we drawing from? And there's this desire to make it an encyclopedia creature, something that could be real, something that would be in a hundred million dollar CGI film, right? But when I go home from those CGI films, I know I was watching a movie. Like, even if it looked photorealistic, I'm not afraid that Godzilla's coming to my town. I'm not looking under my bed for snakes. Like, I knew that those were movie things. They didn't freak me out. So I knew right away that, like, to achieve that, one, would be so much money. And I was never going to get that much money. And it would also rely on me only showing the creature, like, once or twice. And I felt like this arena is a place where survivors or people who have this storyline in their own lives lack certainty they lack answers and so I felt like it would be such a wank as a filmmaker to like employ the same tactics of what makes it scary <laughs> into the creature design I don't know it just felt so a little inappropriate so I knew right away I wanted to do something cool I was like I need to be a cool creature I need to be gritty I need to feel very punk rock I needed to feel like the footage that we've been shooting for the last like, you know, couple of years. So what I did was, is I got a puppet builder, Chelsea Pickens, to design a costume and work with a dancer, Karina Kinnear, to design movement in that costume and animate this creature and bring it to life and come up with a whole um, logic behind how the underlying allegory is reflected in the creature itself. So you know, when we were doing this, Vanta Black hadn't been discovered yet, but if it had, it would have been my touchstone. It would have been like, this is a black hole. This is the worst thing. This is pure darkness coming to just suck you into the void, right? And it's coming to suck you in with these death-like hands. That's how it's going to grab you and pull you into this terrible nightmare storyline that's going to happen to you. So that was the basis of the creature design. And then we got Chanelise Barnett, who was our VFX artist, and she also really understood the metaphor of the monster. And she had this idea that we could create something that escaped the describable, that shifted shapes, that changed the ratio of, you know, how big its torso is in relation to its legs and vice versa. And it sort of had this smoky, like um, amalgamous shape that moved as it moved. You could never quite put your finger on what shape this monster was. Um, and so then in that way, we could be in the same position Jane was in of like, not even sure what you're seeing. And then, you know, it, it's got like flies surrounding it. It's very, it's like death itself. It's rotten. Um, but also similar to how these things function in real life. Like you already mentioned all the different ways that the women in Jane's life turn their backs on her. The flies swarm around this thing too, just like how in your real life, all the people around you will swarm around you and it'll affect them too. So, you know, you get lots of this nice mirroring in the design of the creature to the storyline itself. Yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, I've heard, I've heard that the, the worst, uh, not the worst, but uh, the least reliable evidence is eyewitness evidence because, yeah, it's uh, crazy, so, uh, crazy they, unreliable. They, they've done things like um, in classrooms where like someone will run in and grab a purse and run out and then like have everyone describe what the person looked like and no one can get it right. And everybody's got, well, this person has this color shirt and this person has this color shirt. And so I think it actually, it, it was uh, not that you need my uh, pat on the back, but it was the correct way of going about the film to have that moving and uncertainty of like, wait a minute. 
the monster doesn't look the same way this time as it did a couple seconds ago because it's it's shifting, <laughs> you know. And I think that um, that was uh, a really like a selling point to me of doubling down on that concept of how does she describe the indescribable in the midst of the fact that she was also being traumatized at the exact same time. So yeah, I mean, I think that that was, uh, and you don't need, uh, you don't need to be making uh, Avengers Endgame to to do that. You know, I, I think yes. that, uh, you know, you, you mentioned not having the budget for that. And I don't think that you needed the budget. I, to- I totally got exactly. And, and I, I mentioned uh, the Babadook. Uh, that the the villain in the Babadook, it's not like that was a hundred million dollar CGI creation, but it it told what it needed to tell, um, and I think that uh, like I said, there were certain times where uh, this kind of hit that. And if you're reminding me of the Babadook, it's a good thing. I just want to point that. Oh, out. I mean, it's it would be pretty hard to be compared to Jennifer Kent and not take it as a massive compliment. Okay, <laughs> um, good. Uh, so, um, I don't want to keep you too much. There's a million things I could discuss about this film. Um, but not to give away the end, but I think that my take on the end is that trauma isn't something that you get over in 90 minutes that, uh, when something traumatic happens to you, you don't tie it up by the end of a movie and today, ta-da, we're done. Yay, I'm, I'm back to square one. What is your message on the, the lifespan of trauma and how uh, it's a, an ongoing thing that is dealt with uh, beyond the scope of a, of, of a movie? Um, and I guess throughout life and the healing process, if there, if there was any kind of statement on that or maybe I read too much into it. You know... I am such a huge fan of the, like, stick the landing movies, the movies that, like, in a single scene, everything comes together in a way that's unexpected and yet completely inevitable. And you're like, fuck, yeah, like, that's totally it. And that is the challenge of this film. It's right. It's not like, oh, yeah, sexual assault trauma has been solved. The system is fixed. You know, that's not that's not even in the realm of, like, what's possible in the next, like, decade. So it is hard to come up with an ending that feels satisfying in a way. Sure. And and, and I will say this, this does feel like an ending for, you know, it's not one of those cases where like the, like the one movie where it ended with to see the rest of this film, log onto our website. It's it's not that at all. This is a great ending. Thanks. I mean, I think it's sort of best case scenario, right? For a trauma survivor. It's like you, you've got people in your corner who are willing to go to pretty extreme measures to fight it, fight this with you. And I feel like that is the most that any survivor of like, that is the gift, you know, that's the gift we can give each other is that level of buy-in and belief and support. And yeah, so it's a little, I guess, aspirational in, in that sense. Right. Of, of, uh, this is a, this is a step forward in the healing process. And, uh, Boy, it's 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 good to know you're not alone, and I think that's um, a lot of what she discovers is that uh, even though she f- may have felt like she was fighting this by herself, there are others out there who um, who are who are ready to to take up the fight with you. And I think it's great that through using fiction and a horror movie that you have picked up the fight as well. And because this film is going to be seen by people and it's going to, you know, just like any, uh, any good movie can do, it can open people's eyes and say, you know, cause like I said, there's going to be people that are going to see it and go, well, that's absurd because that would never be the, Oh, it is the case. Okay. Well, that's a problem that we need to fix. Um, and I think that uh, you have helped to take the conversation a step further. And so, I mean, I applaud you for that. And hopefully the movie finds a big, big audience. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really hope that it gets people talking to the people that are closest with them. That's why that is my hope of what it can accomplish. And I think from there that could, you know, that could create a nice little snowball effect. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Yeah. And, uh, everyone good. go see the everyone go see the film. And obviously, with this show, we always want to explore the real world issues. And what better way to cover this issue than to speak with a representative from the organization called Take Back the Night? The Take Back the Night Foundation's mission as a charitable 501c3 organization is to create safe communities and respectful relationships through awareness events and initiatives. They seek to end sexual assault, domestic violence, dating violence, sexual abuse, and all forms of sexual violence. Joining me is Claire Kaplan, a member of the board of Take Back the Night. She served as program director of gender violence and social change at UVA's Women's Center from 1991 to 2020. As an advanced credentialed victim intervention specialist, she is a confidential advocate and promotes trauma-informed programs through her teaching and writing. In 2007, she founded the Men's Leadership Project, a mentoring program that promotes pro-social masculinities in adolescents and their undergraduate mentors. Kaplan is a faculty member of UVA's Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality, and is writing a book for parents on sexual misconduct in higher education. So, uh, first of all, um, I, I want to talk about Take Back the Night, mm-hmm. but... A lot of people, I think, when they watch the movie that we're that we're talking about, Take Back the Night, mm-hmm. uh, they may look at it and say, "Oh, give me a break." They're not believing that she was attacked, or there's thousands of rape kits that weren't uh, done. That's that's straining credibility. Uh, but from what I understand, um, a lot of that is true. Yes. Um, and so, can you explain to me a little bit about? The hurdles that a victim would encounter that might unfortunately keep them from, uh, you know, uh, coming forward with what happened to them. Well, thank you for asking that question. It's It does seem pretty incredible that there are so many barriers, but actually there are even more than that. So I would say to start... <clears throat> The first barriers to reporting are within the survivor, victim-survivor themselves. And I will say them because anyone can be a victim of sexual violence. And those are the kind of cultural labels that we all are raised with, right? So if people have trouble believing the story of a survivor, they've heard that growing up. And so are the people who are victimized. And so those messages are right there. So the first thing is, did I, if it wasn't really obviously violent and, and um, the kinds of stereotypical scenes we have, most of them are people know each other, maybe there's been some drinking, you know, this kind of thing. Um, did I misunderstand? Maybe I misread it. Maybe I gave the wrong signals. You know, all the self-doubt comes into play. So that's already there. Nobody needs to even say it because they're already thinking it themselves. So that's the first barrier. And if someone is... Um, able to take any steps beyond that, the first thing they do is tell a friend. And how that friend responds may signal or or influence the next step. So a friend may say, are you sure? (laughs) You know, or everybody knows that guy's sketchy or whatever people say, right? So nowadays, more young people are very much more aware than they were um, even a few years ago. So they may be less likely to say that kind of thing, but often people do, even if it's unintentional. And I don't think people really intend to be harmful. They just are because they're reflecting the messages that they hear. So that's going to reinforce the, oh, I must be overreacting idea, or if my friend doesn't believe me, who's going to believe me? And so that tends to reinforce silence. Um, so any response of the immediate, the folks in the person's immediate circle are going could, and it's... Um, could actually influence whether or not they take the larger step of, say, reporting to the police, for example, or if they're your, uh, a, a college student and this happened in, in that context, reporting to their administration through a Title IX office. So um, reporting happens very rarely for all those reasons. And when someone does report... Um, then they have to face all that sort of the bureaucracy and the the sort of uh, institutional responses that are often very victim unfriendly. Uh, the first thing is 
they there's the expectation someone would go to the hospital, right, to get evidence collected and be treated. And that's pretty scary. And it's not an easy process. So uh, if someone were to go to the hospital and ask for treatment and ask for an evidence kit to be done, um, in the ideal scenario, the hospital has trained forensic nurses on staff. They have a relationship with their local sexual assault crisis center, and they will call someone if the person who comes, if the, the victim chooses, they'll, they'll ask, do you want a, an advocate? And, and the person will say yes or no. If they say yes, they'll call and someone will come. Or they have a friend with them who to be supportive um, and so on. So that's the ideal scenario. If that's the case, then they also, in the ideal scenario, would have the option to um, do a blind kit or just do a full reporting. And a blind kit is where they assign a number to it and they give that number to the, the victim survivor and say, hang on to that, don't lose it. And if you decide you do want to report to the police, then you just call the, here's the number of the police department, give them this number and then give them your name and they'll put your name on the kit. So until they do that, the name isn't on the kit, it just has a, a number. And so it can be tested, but there is no way to prosecute on that because there's no, um, they don't necessarily know who it belongs to. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, the problem with, you know, is right there, when you're talking about the evidence collection kits, um, sometimes they're called perks or physical evidence recovery kits. Uh, in many instances, those kits, there's a very strong uh, process for chain of evidence. So there's no um, cross-contamination. So it's sealed up and nobody can have access to it. It's all taped up and so on. Um that is hand that that kit is handed over to a police officer who comes to pick it up, and if someone wants to make a report, they'll talk to the officer right then and do an initial kind of intake in a way. Uh, but if they aren't sure they want to report, they get that number. That kit is picked up and taken somewhere and put into storage. The hospital doesn't have room for storage, so it has to be stored by the police department. And often they sit there for a bit and maybe a year, and then they throw them away. Now, they're not supposed to do that, but they will, um, sometimes two years. But um, they may get sent to wherever it is that they have to, that uh, to whatever lab has to do the testing. But that costs a lot of money. So unless there is clear um, funds for that processing, what they do is select the kits where they know there's a pending trial. And if there's a pending trial, then they'll send the, the kit off for uh, processing by the, uh, whether it's the um, ME's office, the medical you know, examiner's office, or someplace like that. So the rest just sit. And that's why you hear of these stories of thousands of kits. Because in the case where there's a, a perpetrator who is not known and has not been caught, there's no trial coming along, right? So. Right. It, they just sit there with ignoring the fact that if they process the kit, they might get some DNA and maybe be able to identify the person, right? So yeah, exactly. there's this, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's this weird, um, there's that piece of it. Also, there is um, the way law enforcement uh, officers are trained, and it really ranges because there, there's a very strong movement to tr change training and how they interview victims and how they're treated. Um, but a lot of the older guys, and I'll say guys because it's mostly guys, but sometimes women, are trained to basically be skeptical. And they're not really trained to talk to victims of traumatic crimes. They are taught to interview suspects. So they sit someone in a room and they talk to them as if they're, they've done something wrong because that's what they're trained to do. And they're also trained to question that, you know, a lot of this old thinking that a person can lie about rape, that women lie about rape. That's an old thing. And so they're already thinking, hmm, you know, could she be trying to, you know, frame someone or is she just lying because she regret she regretted the sex she had the night before whatever the issue is and the stories are confusing because when people have exper experienced trauma and this is why when law enforcement officers 
are trained in what's called a forensic evidence um, uh, an interview process. It's very trauma informed and they understand that when someone's experienced a trauma, they don't remember things the way if I walked up, you know, asked you questions. So what did you do for your vacation last summer? Right. I mean, if you had a vacation, right. you probably will say, Oh, I went here and then we did this and so on. Right. Mm-hmm. But if someone says, well, this horrible thing just happened to you, tell me what happened. And they may tell a little bit, but the things maybe they have, sort of chain of events may be out of order, or the person may not remember what the person was wearing, or they may be confused about times, uh, or they may have a whole blank, or they may just not tell everything because they don't remember it. And then the next day they'll think, oh, I remember this happened, or I was wrong about this time. And that immediately sets up a, a sort of sense of doubt on the part of the person who's doing the investigation. But a trained investigator will say, aha, this is very typical of people who've experienced trauma. So this is nothing to worry about. And that's why, the, the in fact, what we do know is that memory is encoded in the brain about 48 hours after an event. So if someone, say, shows up at the hospital and says, I am interested in making a report, the, they should get a, like a card from the, from the nurse or from the officer and say, here's the, a detective, you know, here's a card. A detective will call you in 48 hours. Go home, clean up, wash, rest, take care of yourself, try not to think about it. No, that's impossible, but you know, do what you can. You won't hear from anybody for 48 hours because they know that if they wait that long, the memory will be encoded in the brain and that they'll get a much clearer picture of what actually occurred. And so all that stuff plays into, you know, if it's that's not what's happening, they're going to doubt it. Say she's making this stuff up. She can't even get her story straight. So the worst thing that ever happened to her, she can't even remember it. Which, which is common with trauma anyway. That's right. Any kind of trauma, right? I mean, right. if I asked you to say, describe a car accident to me, you'd probably say, I was driving, uh, somebody ran the red light, it hit me. Well, that's not the accident. I mean, you, what's all right. the other stuff, right? Yeah. I saw the car coming. I thought, oh my God, you know, all those things that happened. This is, this is a dumb question, um, but and, – and, and semi-unrelated, but like I, I was watching uh, Phoenix Rising uh, – the other night and uh, about the California bill that uh, was extending the amount of time that you could report uh, domestic mm-hmm. abuse, I think it was. Um, and uh, they settled on giving giving someone seven years. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like, well, well who's pushing to settle? Uh, like, so yeah. I, I guess the idea is, and, and you may not be able to answer this, why don't we put a more funding, more uh, concern towards these issues as a society? What's going on in our collective psyche to where this isn't an important thing? Hmm. Well, of course, I, I I can't speak to all of that, but it's it's funny if you look at or if you listen to the um, recent Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings, you would think it was important, right? But it really isn't. Right. right. That, you know, they were trying to go after Judge uh, Brown about, you know, uh, giving uh, what they would consider uh, easy sentences on a very tiny number of, pedof- of you know, people who've been accused of uh, child porn. And but these are people that's just coming from people who could care less about really about this issue, because if we were going to tackle it the way it should be tackled, whether it's child abuse or, you know, pornography or domestic violence or sexual violence, it would require such a change in our culture and our society. They would never want to go near that. Right. It's just not touching it because that would be considered too radical. It it just seems to me like it may be radical, but it's also common sense to me to just Oh, okay. Well, let's just make that change then. I guess there's political pressure. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. It's above my pay grade, but it's infuriating <laughs> to me that uh, that we can't get simple, what seems like uh, simple protections for people who are attacked and mm-hmm. uh, traumatized. That's uh, Well, part so- of the issue, I would say one of the issues here is that, and I don't know, the thing you mentioned that was in California, I know there have been... 
that was domestic violence to extend the statute of limitations or was uh, it yeah child, yeah child yeah abuse? this was uh, evan uh, evan rachel wood's um oh, oh. relationship with uh-huh. marilyn manson and yeah, the yeah. trauma that she experienced right so it was a little bit different from the topic at hand but right and that was more than likely um it could have been a, a uh, criminal statute of limitations that also could have been for suing someone. And so that's um, because there are limitations on those. And w- part of what's behind that is that most people are not emotionally able to or prepared to actually deal with all that, you know, stuff that's involved with the, say, bringing a lawsuit or anything, even re- dealing with the criminal justice system for quite some time after something occurs. So that and that you know the idea that there's a delay can also make people question like why didn't they report when it happened right so um all these things come into play i would say um every state's different um for example in uh some states there's no statute of limitations on violent felonies so it wouldn't matter for civil stuff though there may be you know that's a different matter but for criminal stuff there may not be so it all kind of varies that state by state can be different so where does uh, I guess this is where uh, Take Back the Night comes into play? Um, tell me about the founding of the organization and what you uh, what you folks do to uh, to help us out. Well, Take Back the Night is actually uh, was founded by Katie Kessner, who herself is a survivor and who. Uh, when she was raped uh, back in 1991, and she was a college student, she got no support or help other than from the Sexual Assault Crisis Center. But she didn't get any support from her school, and her parents basically left her out hanging out to dry. So um, there, but she, she didn't take that as a. a she basically then became an activist and started educating about it and has been still doing it to this day. Uh, but, but, but what we do as an organization is really provide um, some technical support and support generally, A, to groups of people who are wanting to organize um, events or activities or actions around sexual violence. So, um, for example, lots of times on college campuses, they have Take Back the Night events and they, they don't sure where to begin and they need some help and we provide that they we also provide a platform for survivors to share their stories Um, they can do that on the website they can um uh we have events uh a couple of times a year that are online basically online take back the night events so we invite people to come speak and to speak out to share their stories and sometimes they're sharing a poem. It doesn't have to be, you know, a story just read. It could be music. It could be all kinds of things. So we do that as well. Mostly what we're doing is supporting other folks who are doing this work and um, helping um, elevate the issue both nationally and globally, because some of these events are global. And then we're connected to um, other um, educational endeavors and other um, activities, and we network with other organizations. So it's it's um, and our the podcast is really more um, that we have is really uh, it's a platform for survivors to tell their stories that came out of Katie's own work as uh, someone who is educating and traveling around the world and sharing her story and talking to folks. And so that's kind of connected to Take Back the Night, but it's also part of her work also as an individual person. So uh, largely TBTN um, is an organization that promotes the voices of survivors. Uh, We have a web page, well, we have a page where there are resources that people can access if they don't know what's available to them locally or in their state. Uh, And uh, also we have a legal support hotline which is unusual. Most organizations don't have that and it's free. So if someone is really needing some legal advice, uh, they're not sure where to turn, perhaps they are considering, um, maybe they are involved in the criminal justice process, but aren't sure if they're getting what they need or they feel like they need some assistance. Uh, The system isn't working for them. Or maybe they're considering, you know, what are my rights civilly? You know, what can I do to sue whoever, an organization or a person? Um, what are my rights related to my school? That kind of thing. So the legal support hotline can provide that kind of information. That's sort of in a nutshell what we do. Well, and I, I read on the site that uh, you guys uh, um, incorporated, uh, you know, like you mentioned, 
poetry, mm-hmm. music, uh, art, um, right. is the creative, I guess, purging of, of of the of the of the memories or whatever uh, to communicate through creativity is that uh, beneficial? Uh, do you think? I mean, like as far as for their recovery, or is it just a matter of uh, using art to uh, broaden the uh, the message as far as like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, getting more people to hear about it. I would say it's both. Uh, art is, and writing, any creative endeavor is a wonderful therapeutic tool. And the more we know about this, uh, people have done research on this and have found that's very much to be true. Uh, we know for specifically journaling is and writing is uh often a very wonderful tool for people to heal. But it's not only not only dance or art, um, and a lot of survivors do those things because it does feel good and it, it's a way to express themselves. But even other kinds of activities can be therapeutic and healing, whether it's running, you know, the kind of physical activity, working with animals, for example, is very therapeutic. So there's a lot of things people can do. Um, the outside of sitting in a therapist's office, for example, uh, which is also really important, but there are many ways to heal. And part of the the question is, what is it that one individual person needs and what's the best way for them to express themselves. And we have found that many survivors, you know, they come to our Tape Back the Night events and they've written an amazing song, you know, or they've written a poem or something, or they've done created a dance. And and so great, you know, that there's no reason why it just has to be, I'm going to tell you my story and here it is, you know, which is also a wonderful thing because it can be very powerful. And it, but it is definitely cathartic. It absolutely is a wonderful thing. So anybody can do that on their own time. And you don't have to do it with someone's guidance. But there are actually people who work with trauma survivors using the creative arts. So it's it's used frequently as a therapeutic tool. Yeah, we actually uh, did an event uh, uh, several months back uh, with uh, art therapy uh, with veterans. Oh, great. Um, yeah. And uh, it was it went really well. So what would what would your advice be for someone? First of all, it's a two parter. Okay. Um, what would your advice be for someone who one wants to put together a take back the, the night event to get people motivated mm-hmm. in uh, their hometown? Uh, what should they do? And secondly, if someone has experienced an assault and they're they're at that stage where they're maybe they're not getting the support that they need. Uh, where do they turn or or what would your advice Mm -hmm. be for them to take that next step? Okay. So as far as the first part goes, if you're interested in organizing a Take Back the Night event in your community, and it doesn't have to be a college campus, TBTN, Take Back the Night marches started in the 70s by community groups. It was not even connected to colleges. So in the original days of of Take Back the Night, it was just a group of people getting together and protesting. So carrying on a tradition, first of all, you need to find other people who have of like mind. And I would say the first thing to do is to consider what is the purpose of this event? What are you trying to what are the messages you want to convey? And be creative in your outreach. If you want other folks to get involved, it's really important to consider who's present and who isn't present. You want to make sure that there's representation in your organizing group from many communities, whether it's communities of color, LGBTQ communities, trans communities, whatever, um, indigenous communities, uh, because these folks are the most vulnerable. Uh, the most vulnerable people to sexual violence are number one, transgender people and indigenous people. And generally anyone who doesn't fit the sort of stereotype of the white heterosexual, whatever. Um, so I, I think, I think I heard something <laughs> recently about um, assaults on Asian women have mm-hmm. uh, gone up just over the last yeah, couple of years. Like have they have. Up. Yeah. yeah. And those are often physical assaults. People just, Come up to someone and just beat them up, which is horrible. So make sure you have those diverse voices present in your group. So basically you're creating a coalition, which means doing a lot of listening and less talking, and then just trying to figure out what it is you're trying to say in that event. And the focus of Take Back the Night, of course, is generally about sexual and gender-based violence. It includes domestic violence, stalking, those kinds of things. Um, It could, you know, it's up to you if you want to broaden it. So then... 
um, there's all the practical things to think about, but there will be people present, hopefully, who know how to do that. But also you can contact Take Back the Knife Foundation for any advice that the, we may have for you. And sometimes it's something something as simple as, um, don't forget, you need to might need to get a permit you know, to have this event, or it might be, do you need t-shirts, whatever it is. So uh, think about that. Um, and there are, there's plenty of wisdom um, in this organization for organizing these kinds of events. And so that's my basic, you know, advice. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, um, but there's no need. You know, if you don't want to do an April, you don't have to do an April, right? And October generally is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. There's lots of months, so it doesn't have to be in April. Uh, the other piece is um, that you were talking about is what should someone do if they don't know where to turn or they feel that they're being stymied um, in their efforts to achieve some kind of justice or healing. And again, I think first thing you can do is if nobody's listening to you, find out if there's a hotline in your area, a sexual assault hotline in your area, and it could be a state hotline or there are national hotlines. And some of them are text hotlines and some are um, phone hotlines. Uh, for example, Rain has a, has a hotline that's national. So there's a lot of, there are resources out there. The question is, do you know where to look for them? And if you particularly, if you're in a rural area, say, and you're in an abusive relationship, the resources may not be right there for you. So find out, you know, get on your phone and start looking for local resources. Um, every state has a coalition. And so it could be a domestic violence coalition. It could be a sexual assault coalition, or it could be a combination of those two things. They will have information about whatever agencies, community services, et cetera, are close to you. So that's where I would suggest starting. And that you can find that information out on the Take Back the Night Foundation webpage, but it's also available elsewhere as well. The other thing is to try not to get discouraged if someone is doubting your story. If you're doubting it yourself because you waited or you weren't sure what happened or you start questioning your own actions, uh, Trust your instincts. Trust that inner voice inside you. If something felt wrong, it was wrong. The question is, what are the best steps for you? It may not be going to the police. And maybe you just need some to make sure you're healthy, physically healthy, and you are got the medical attention you need. Um, it might be that you just need someone to talk to. Um, it, it could be something that happened a long time ago. So really it is at that point counseling or just, you know, a good ear is pretty much what you need. So there's, there are a lot of options. And the question is finding a person who's knowledgeable, who is trained to talk with survivors, who, if it's a healthcare professional and you're looking for a therapist, make sure they have been trained in treating trauma and specifically the kinds of trauma you've experienced. Because there's a lot of people who say they've, they know trauma and they don't know trauma. And a lot of counseling training programs, they're, they're doing it more recently, but for a long time, they didn't require training and treating trauma. You know, go figure that one out. You know, it's, it's, um, you need to have someone who knows their stuff. Gotcha. Uh, well, uh, that's, uh, that's a lot of info, uh, that I think is going to help people. And I want people to go to your website, uh, which is, thank you. Um, take back the night.org. Take back the night.org. Uh, uh, you guys do great work. Um, thank you. And, uh, I like definitely, so. uh, I, I appreciate, uh, your time to educate people. And what I really love about this is, uh, you know, people will tune into what we're talking about because they just want to watch a horror movie. And if they, if you stick through that, that talk and get into this, hopefully it's going to, some people are going to hear this that are going to then say, you know what, I need to take some action. So, um, if you're, if you are listening to this, uh, and, uh, you're thinking, you know, I should take action, go do it. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you, David, for the opportunity. We're, we're so glad to have met you and, um, you're doing good work as well. So we appreciate the time. Thank you. And that's our show. I'd like to thank my guests, Gia Elliott and Claire Kaplan. Make sure you check out the film, Take Back the Night. 
and look into the organization of the same name to help make this world safer. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure you follow us on social media. We are at GWE Contact on Facebook and Instagram. We have a Twitter too, but I never use it. And of course, our website is GWEContact.org. We'll talk with you again soon. And remember, like any great franchise, your story isn't over yet.